Well, welcome back, listeners. We're here to give you another episode of the Law of Liberty podcast. We're really excited for it. But before we get started, we've got a little uh, little something to say, um, a little bit of sad news. So Stratty would like to fill you in. Stratty? So our fans of the show may be aware, uh, a couple months back, we had on as a guest Joshua Flynn, who was running for uh, District 78 in Illinois uh, as a state rep. And uh, yesterday, which right now we're recording on the 3rd of January, not sure when this will come out, but yesterday I got the news that he had passed away in his sleep. And um, Joshua was a, a friend of mine, I would say. He, at one point we were calling once a week and having one hour conversations on the phone. But uh, more than that, Joshua was a very great man and a very great libertarian. Um, we didn't exactly agree on everything, but I would say he was one of my best friends in this Liberty world. And I've haven't lost anyone, uh, until now. Um, and you know, yesterday was very hard for me and, uh, it's bothered me a lot, but I just wanted to come on here and say my condolences to the Flynn family. And also just thank you to, uh, God and Mr. Flynn for one for God for giving us his life and to Mr. Flynn for living such an amazing life. He was always active with his community. Um, he ran multiple businesses, uh, was a family man and just cared about other people. And he wanted to see things decentralized and better for everyone. And who, who can't get behind that. So rest in peace, Mr. Joshua Flynn. And there's really no better way to say it, you know, just yeah. it's, it's a sad sad deal you know i i didn't i wasn't as close to him as as you were i only met him the one time on the show but i had a very pleasant conversation with him and like you said he was a very nice man um i liked talking to him a lot and he seemed like he was a man of character of ambition and a man who like you said he cared about family um he cared about you know he was a hard worker running businesses and trying to make the world a better place and to fight for liberty so you know i Echo everything you said. My condolences to his family, and yes, rest in peace to him. And uh, take it from us too soon. The one thing I will say is, yesterday, um, before we go on to the topic of the episode, yesterday I was very pleased though with the outpouring of love and respect for Joshua Flynn. So many people, Germinal G Van, uh, Spike Cohen. Just across the libertarian world, big names, um, whether we agree with them or not, it's great to see them giving respect to this man, in my opinion. I did not expect that, but it was a very uh, – it lifted my spirits. And um, let's keep his spirit alive, people. Yeah. Let's yeah, keep well, his memory alive, and let's make liberty win. Well said, well said. That's the thing. We need to take moments like this and to drive us forward. You know, Don't get too bogged down. Obviously, take a moment and – reflect and it's okay to be sad not all tears aren't evil but let's try to take his legacy and his memory and try to move it forward because that's what he'd want us to do he'd want us to keep moving forward to fight for liberty one more thing before we go on to the topic i have to say this um please uh our listeners um i urge you to go on amazon and buy his book black libertarianism in the blue state by joshua flynn it's paperback it's 17 dollars and 50 cents um it go. It will help his family out, and you'll also be reading some great insight from a man with a 
I would say, you know, a unique point of view for libertarians today. Uh, Josh did a lot for liberty and the black community. And I, I respect that wholly. That's something I think should be uh, focused upon, especially by our circles. But um, yes, that's Black Libertarianism in the Blue State by Joshua Flynn. Um, we'll include a link in the description for this episode. But please purchase that and advertise it. Let people know that he has a book out there. And, and the more purchases that go towards that book, uh, you know, the more help his family gets. And that's very important right now. So I urge you to please buy Black Libertarianism in the Blue State by Joshua Flynn on Amazon.com. All right. So moving on to the topic of our episode, I wrote a little paper. <laughs> A little paper, yes. <laughs> and I sent it your way. And, and Stratty, after you read it yesterday, you said that you were kind of hoping to, to intro it. So I'm a little yeah, I'm, I'm honored. So, like, what, what did you think? And, and what do you have to, how are you going to prime our, our listeners to, to dive into this? This may be the best um, example of why Austro libertarians specifically get the ideas of self-determination and secessions and their uh, solutions to the problems so right. And I'll get more into that later, why I think uh, that is. But Dave, I mean, I've listened to countless people talk about secession in our circles, uh, very amazing people with great insight, like DiLorenzo, Pat Buchanan, uh, Jeff Dice, you, uh, Murray Rothbard, you name them. But um, Dave, this paper, man, um, felt like I was kind of reading a Walter Block paper where he explains absolutely everything and doesn't leave anything question to be questioned. Um, you really summed things up in such a precise way that I I would love to see this in a collection of essays someday in a book, man. Uh, you know, I I can't exactly do it. It's total justice in this intro. All I can say is that this paper blew me away and I think it should be shared more in our circles because people would finally understand uh, how to defend the Austro-Libertarian position on these ideas such as self-determination and secession. Um, like I said, I'll get into it more in our conversation, but from there, Dave, I think you should really explain to these people what you were getting at here because I'm not so good with the legal mumbo jumble. So you go ahead, Dave. Well, I'll, I'll start similarly to the last episode when we talked about my smart contracts paper. Um, I'll kind of just start with the history behind my writing it and the, the, the problem that I was addressing. So I took a class on public international law this last semester, which just ended. And public international law is basically a branch of international law about the relationship between states. So in, in international law, the operative unit of, of international law is states, and that's what international law is about. What is a state? What constitutes a state? And what are the rules of, what are the rules of engagement of, of interrelations between states at the international interstate level? So it's very fascinating stuff, and it's interesting, that, especially from a libertarian viewpoint, and I would, I would urge everybody listening to go listen to um, Stefan Kinsella did a talk, an introduction of, of international law from a libertarian viewpoint that was at the Property and Freedom Society a, a couple of years ago, a handful of years ago maybe. 
he talks about how international law is really interesting from a libertarian perspective because there's no world state, right? So states are in a situation of anarchy vis-a-vis -vis each other. There is no world state, world sovereign that's above states and their relationships with each other. And this is really interesting because we still see law and order arising at the international level, even between states who we understand aren't the perfect embodiments of law as we conceive of it. So it's really interesting, international law, on how it, it, it kind of it shows how even under the worst situations for law, even with a state, we can still have these kind of legal principles and law arise through the use of reason and through other mechanisms rather than legislative fiat. And, you know, because of the nature of states and that they are so inundated with legislation and their own domestic laws, and then we have the UN and other kind of things, supernatural, supranational organizations that have arisen over the past, you know, century or so. Um, you know, I, I definitely have some problems with that, and there is growing centralization. But the, the point still remains that at least throughout the broad history of international law, there's some interesting libertarian-ish kind of things, at least things we can point to to support our libertarian view of law. So that's why I was interested in it in the first place. So that's why I took the class. And then when I was in the class, I learned about this one principle of international law. And it's a pretty new principle, and it's called self-determination of peoples. That's one term, self-determination of peoples. Now, I was really interested with this because I had, you know, in studying Austro-Libertarians and stuff in the past, they talk about self-determination and they talk about secession. And this is something that you pointed out that we're very interested in and something that is really crucial and of serious importance these days with, with I mean, especially in America, we, you know, we got Texas threatening to secede and stuff like we might see some of this really coming and, and being really applicable to our lives right now today. And, but I was really interested in this in this principle. And when I learned about it, I, I liked the idea of self-determination, right? Because it's like that seems to be something that just the term itself stripped away of any historical or legal context, which we'll get into. But just that term, self-determination, you know, that's a libertarian, that's a libertarian kind of, kind of thought, you know, that you own yourself, that you own your property, and that you should be able to determine your own life and your decisions and so that's that's something that's why I was really interested in it. But then you get into the actual doctrine itself and then you learn some of these these legal machinations going on with the principle of 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 self-determination, right? Separate from the kind of more abstract idea of it. And this is an important distinction that I make in the paper. And so hopefully when we're going through this, I'll be clear about exactly which I'm talking about on any given point. But there, there is, there's kind of a, a political view of self-determination. And then there's a legal view of self-determination. And those are different things. The political view is more of what libertarians talk about. Rothbard, and, and I, I drew heavily from an essay that Rothbard wrote in the Irrepressible Rothbard book, which, which he wrote in the 90s for the Nations Rockwell Rothbard book. I talk a lot about nations by consent. Oh, it's yes, not that one. Okay, that was that was posted in the journal Libertarian Studies. 
One of the other ones that he posted was called The Nationalities Question, which was released in the Irrepressible Rothbard. It was part of the Rockwell Rothbard reports from yes. the 90s. And, dude, I, before you go on, I want to say I loved the footnotes. I loved seeing some of the names in the footnotes, but I was I loved that you used the Rothbard Rockwell reports because um, this is something we'll talk about off air. But I'm also using the Rothbard Rockwell oh. reports as some sources for things. So Fantastic. Yeah. It's a, I mean, so I, I basically just, you know, typed in on Mises Wiki or on Google, you know, uh, Rothbard self-determination. And then I find it. I'm like, OK, this is this is it. Like, this is going to be a good source. So I drew really, really heavily from that. But when I was doing my research, I recognized that. When Rothbard's talking about self-determination, when other libertarians are talking about secession and self-determination, they're really looking at it from a very abstract political theory perspective, right? They don't seem to directly tackle this legal principle, this legal doctrine of international law. They Obviously, they're tangentially kind of talking about it just by talking about self-determination at all, but they look at it more politically. They look at it more abstractly. They don't dig into this doctrine itself under international law and try to analyze it directly. So that was a deficiency in the literature that I thought needed to be rectified. So I thought, I'm going to take Rothbard, I'm going to take these political ideas of self-determination and the Austro-Libertarian view, and I'm going to use that as a lens with which to view this legal doctrine and then analyze the legal doctrine and see what if it makes sense, what if it doesn't make sense, how can it be better, and, and what kind of predictions can we make about how it's going to affect international law and, and, and secessionist movements and other things in the future. So that's the broad kind of thing that I was trying to do. I was trying to take this political self-determination that Austro-Libertarians have talked about, inject it into this legal self-determination that's existing under international law, and then do an analysis to figure out what we can from there. That's the broad view. What do you think about all that? I'll go ahead and just say one of my notes right now. Um, I was going to wait until we got more into it. But um, what I was, the main thought that kind of popped into my head reading this um, was that, you know, Austro libertarians have both the least confusing and most straightforward view on self-determination. And they also have the most effective and sensible solutions to its potential problems. And I think that this is all because of, uh, you know, all the other, um, the, all the other views on international law and self-determination and all this that you're tackling here, their views are compacted with uh, so much diversity in terms of ideology. And therefore, mm -hmm. there's going to be so many contradictions as well as solutions that don't make any sense and also add to the problem. And uh, we see this happen a lot in international politics, which have a lot to do with international law. Um, and in those realms, we've never seen Austro-Libertarian ideas uh, and views uh, applied. So that was something I found very interesting from your paper um, was that, you know, if we saw a real world application of this, we might start to make sense of things. But um, I, I feel they don't want to make sense of things. I feel that the reason there is so much confusion over this and uh, why it's such a quagmire, both legally and politically, 
is because the with most things government wants to cause confusion so that people will become complacent and either care less about these two ideas or see it in a light that benefits their own government so um yes what do you what do you think of that because that's really the two main thoughts that hit me while reading this i think you're spot on yeah and and i think that one of the most important things that i do with the paper is the way i set up the story so I go through the history of the idea of self-determination from the, from, from the mid-19th century and, and up till World War I, and I start from there, and then I go through it with the process of decolonization and then afterwards. And what we can see is, is a point that you exactly brought up, is, is there's so many contradictions in this principle because it was the birth, it was a legal birth of so many political battles that were going on between the, between the West and the Third World, between more capitalist, quasi-capitalist, you know, uh, em em empire states and these new Third World socialist states that were arising in, in the time of decolonization and afterwards. So... That's one of the things I really harp on in the paper is how these political fighting was going on between these two sides, and each one was was asserting and was asserting self determination, but trying to withhold some certain outcomes that would logically come from asserting that position. They they've got this tug of war where they're kind of asserting it, not asserting it, but all under the hope of getting more power for themselves, right? Because the the third world states are saying, oh, we want we want well, okay. Well, first of all, with Woodrow Wilson and World War One, that's where it really starts. That's the time when when self determination was a political principle. And after World War One, the imperial powers were saying, "We want to bring self determination to Europe. We want to bring people together based on common history and language, and we'll have a German state and this and this." It was all just it was just a political front for the imperial powers to redraw the political lines of Europe in the way that they saw fit. And it's also a big fallacy that anyone can be self-determining for someone else. Exactly. Especially well, authority. Well, and that's one of the big things that Rothbard talks about. He mentions that in, in the nationalities question essay. He says, um, I, 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 may, I may have a quote. Let me see if I can pull up this quote. Um, I love it so much. Yes. Okay. So Rothbard states, quote, wasn't the Wilsonian attempt to impose national self-determination and draw the map of Europe a disaster? And how? But the disaster was inevitable, even assuming, incorrectly, goodwill on the part of Wilson and the Allies and ignoring the fact that national self-determination was a mask for their imperial ambitions. For by its nature, national self-determination cannot be imposed from without by a foreign government entity, be it the United States or some world league. The whole point of national self-determination is to get top-down coercive power out of the picture and for the use of force to devolve from the larger entity to more genuine natural and voluntary national entities. In short, to devolve power from the top downward. Imposing national self-determination from the outside makes matters worse and more coercive than, than ever. So that's exactly right. The entire idea of, of imposing national self-determination, it's a, it's a farce. And something I wanted to point out, and I may have misunderstood you. Can you repeat your point you made about Austro-Libertarians and the political uh, view on self-determination? Yes, yes. So, at least in the literature that I found so far, Rothbard especially, they they mainly focus on self-determination as more of a pol an idea of political theory. 
They're not looking at it in the sense of the legal doctrine which arose during the 20th century, which is a which is a difference there. So they're, they're connected, obviously. Yes. But there's a there's an important distinction. So therefore, would you say that Austro libertarians support the political view on self-determination? Yes. I mean, in the sense of what Rothbard's talking about. Yes, okay. he would well, support that. Here was my here was my thought on that. I, I, I kind of agree with you. However, I think they would only support it as a means to an end because there's problems with these um, with the political view on self-determination. And we see this in uh, civil wars popping up and stuff like that. And while that's mainly aggression uh, against self-determination, it's still a problem that arises from it being a political or seen as a political issue. So therefore, my thinking is that, yes, they would support it as a means to an end with certain uh, limits on yeah. that as means. I, and, I think you're t- I think you're totally right. I'm sorry. Yeah, Continue. you're good. And, and therefore, I think it's they see it ultimately self-determination as a natural rights thing. It's your right as an individual to be, have self-determination. And I think that's the mainly how they would view it. That's just what that was just my thoughts reading it as well. So that's an important distinction, too, is 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 the collectivist view of self-determination versus the individualist view of yes. self-determination. Yes. Now, what Rothbard is talking about in the nationalities question, you're right. He is actually taking a bit more of a collectivist view and explicitly so. He does this in Nations by Consent as well, where he says every person is necessarily born to a nation, a family, a language, a culture, a history, a certain place. And that's really important. Now, he's not throwing out, you know, methodological individualism and the importance, you know, individualism that's at the base of the Austro-Libertarian theory, especially its, its, its politics and its economics. But you're right. He is saying we're at point A and point A is the world right now as it exists with states. How politically, practically can we get towards the, the pure anarcho-capitalist ideal? And, and you're right. One of those means is national self-determination. And Rothbard says that. He says national self-determination. The legal principle says self-determination of peoples. And we'll get into what a people is and stuff. But you're right. Rothbard is talking more of a collectivist, practical, means-to-an-end view. So I agree that self-determination in terms of the individual is 100% like solid theory and then there's this other view where it's a little bit more practical but i make this point in the paper too that we can have self-determination of groups through voluntary contract of individuals so that's the view of collectivist self-determination that's that's really theoretically sound if we have actual provable contractual relationships between people so i have a few more points on kind of the practicality element to this inquiry right and and this is a this like i said this is a part, point that rothbard takes very seriously i think it's in nations by consent he talks about um referendums um you know people having the right to like a parish or a section or a city or a parish a section of a city or something a section of a state being able to vote on whether or not to leave and then you know and he says this this isn't a a route to a panacea or a utopia he says this explicitly, but in terms of getting us towards a better position and in terms of getting the state to be as in line with private property and private contract as possible, 
that's a practical way to move towards it. So a lot of Rothbard that I'm drawing from here is this kind of a little bit more politically minded. And I think that's really an important, an important thing to, to take in when we're considering a legal doctrine which has arisen underneath a statist international system. So we, that's a, a factor to consider. And I don't think it's, it's by any means a, a problem with the, with, the, with the entire theory because, like I said before, you can have, quote-unquote, self-determination as long as it's through you know, individuals privately contracting with each other. And I make that point in the paper. Yeah, let's just double back real real quick to the history, and I'll just give a little bit of a rundown of the history before we get um, deeper into the to the main theoretical argument. Like I said, during World War One, we have Wilson and the Allies. They may have this idea of self determination that they will that they will put it onto Europe by redrawing the political boundaries, and it was all just kind of a front for their imperial ambitions. Then after that. We had the adoption of the United Nations and the United Nations Charter after World War II. And in the United Nations Charter, they use the term self-determination in a few places. Let me, let me find this again. Look this up, phase two. The United Nations Charter in 1945 marked the beginning of the second phase. This phase began by identifying self-determination as a principle rather than as a right. So this isn't a right yet. It becomes a human right later under international law. But at this time, post-World War II, it's not a right. It's just a principle proclaimed in a manner that did not necessarily require dismembering colonial empires. So we have Article 1-2 and Article 55 of the United Nations Charter. And the context of these seems to be the rights of the peoples of one state to be protected from interference by other states or governments. We cannot ignore the coupling of self-determination with equal rights, and it was equal rights of states that was being provided for, not of individuals. The concept of self-determination did not then originally seem to refer to a right of dependent peoples to be independent or indeed even to vote. So that's how it started when the UN first came in. We have this, this self-determination, which is in these two articles, but it's not really being used for peoples yet against the state. What's up? Before you go on, let's talk about how scary that idea is, though. I, equal rights for states. That could, that could possibly mean a state with equal rights could have right to another state's citizen and therefore do with them as they wish. Uh, in, a, in my mind, at least, that can make some sense. They could, you know, uh, you find your right judges, your right lawyers, whatever, and they'll push anything into the direction that the states, the people of power want the direction pushed into. That the I when I read that man, that was some new world order type stuff going oh, yeah. on in my brain. Oh yeah, when I read for that, sure. and that it just that's scary all on its own. But that's the only point I wanted to make there. Sure, sure. Um. So, but th this changed, and over over the course of about twenty years after this. Um, throughout the 50s, we see a shift where international law begins to proclaim the principle of self-determination as a right. So it starts off as this political principle, and then it kind of becomes this, this legal principle, but it's not a legal right. And now we see it becoming a legal right, but the right is... is limited only to the context of decolonization. So during this time period when there were when the colonial empires were breaking down, 
the United Nations and the new states that were arising from these breaking down of the empires, they were saying, hey, we want self-determination, which by that they meant. We want an independent state. We want to have a state that is independent in the international sphere. And that so self-determination at this time was kind of a, a word for that. So we see this political tug of war where at first we have the empires asserting self-determination in order to take control of the political borders of Europe. But then in decolonization, we see the decolonizing third world territories asserting self-determination in order to break free from those same imperial powers. So it's again to that point you made how we see international politics driving the birth of this doctrine and from conflicting sides who they can't square their views. So they're trying to assert the same thing, but they're doing it in completely contradictory ways. And then when we get to the final, the current incarnation of the doctrine, we'll see some of those contradictions come into play and hopefully solve them with, with, our, with our Austro-Libertarian insights. And so in the 50s, we see the United Nations General Assembly with the new states coming in, beginning to take a kind of a moral stand on self-determination. And we see them adopt various, um, uh, uh, various documents, various uh, 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 different kind of things, um, General Assembly resolutions, that's what they're called, and conventions on, on human rights, economic, political rights, different kind of things. And, and if you read the paper, I, I, I lay out those different documents and you can find them in the footnotes. But what starts to happen is they assert it as a right, but it's only in the decolonization context. And also one of the things they talk about is that the right of self-determination does not, in their view, justify the right of secession. The new states that are coming out of decolonization, they want to assert self-determination in order to break free from the imperial powers, but then they turn around and say, but now that we have an independent state, you have self-determination, people, in our new state, so you can't secede from us. We can break free from the colonial powers, but the peoples inside of our territory, no, no, you can't break free from us. And there's an international law principle called uh, Udi, uh, oh God, it's a Latin term. I always, I always mess it up. Let me find it. It's called Uti Posiditis Juris. And basically that doctrine just means that when there is a state succession, when a new state succeeds a previous state, the default borders for the new state are based on the political borders of the old state. So the governmentality, you know, provincial whatever lines of the imperial powers, those were the bases for the new lines of the states that came out of decolonization. And so there's this tension here between maintaining borders and state sovereign territorial integrity, but also this idea of self-determination, which seems logically to allow for secession. So all this politics here where they want to break free, but then they don't allow secession, right? And, and, and this kind of, they, they want to break free, but, oh, we, we can't destroy state territorial integrity entirely, right? So there's these contradictions here. So it's a, it's a time of a lot of change, the, the 50s and 60s, for this, for this doctrine, for this principle of self-determination. The one thing I will say about what you just said right there is 
specifically the point you made about how these third world type states can, in a sense, secede from their imperial powers. In my mind, what popped up was like leaders like Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, Thomas Sankara, people who were rulers of third world countries and wanted self-determination in, as a, a collectivized nation, but were very uh, totalitarian over the, their own people in, within that nation. That's just as, that's just yeah. as bad as uh, imperial powers. And- exactly. Then that's exactly what was happening. They wanted to be the imperial power, as it were. They wanted to have control. They wanted to retch control away from the old West, but then they wouldn't give it to the people themselves. You know, it's, 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 uh, meet the new boss. Same as the old boss. Yeah. And also yeah. good for me, not for thee, which is a very, right. uh, a big attitude prevalent in tyrannical leaders, especially yeah. socialist ones. Yeah, for sure. And and those third world states were very socialist. All, well, and all three of those guys I just named, Hussein, Gaddafi, Sankara, all three very socialist leaders. Absolutely, without yeah. a doubt. So then we, then we come into the third phase. And the third phase, we see self-determination become a human right under international law. So what happens is, we see we see more um, we see more resolutions, conventions, and stuff adopted by the United Nations. Discussions and arguments and stuff between the states and the General Assembly at this time. And and what happens is that it came to be accepted that the right of self determination was applicable not only to peoples under colonial rule, but also to the peoples subject to foreign or alien domination. This was spelled out in UN Declaration on Family Relations of 1970. And then this period as well saw an adoption of a distinction between internal and external self-determination. So external self-determination means that you have independent state status in the international system. So that's what external self-determination is. And that's what the previous period was focusing on during decolonization was giving these areas independent states. Internal self-determination is a different idea, which provides that every citizen shall have the right to take part in the conduct of public affairs, to vote, and to be elected at periodic elections on the basis of universal suffrage, and to have access to public service in his country. Um, That's from Article 25 of the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights at the United Nations. And also, internal self-determination talks about economic economic social and cultural freedom now i will say that all of this sounds rosy and peachy right and this is what the united nations and these governments and stuff do all the time they put nice little things on paper and it sounds really great and then when push comes to shove it's all just bogus and this is a point i make in the paper is that rights on paper don't mean jack if you're not actually following them and the way that self-determination, once you view it through an Austro-Libertarian lens, you realize that the modern incarnation under the under the law of interna- under international law, it cannot actually have self-determination properly understood, as Rothbard describes it, as we describe it. So that's an important thing too. I, I recognize that that they put these flowery flowery 
language in there. But, you know, you and I, we take a real politic view and we don't care about what they say. We care about what they do. And as long as you have a state, you can't have self-determination. So that's the point I make in the paper that, um, you know, it's just another contradiction embedded in this embedded in this doctrine that we see when we adopt the Austro-Libertarian viewpoint. So I, I should add to the secession issue. Let's talk a little bit more about secession. Because self-determination and secession are not exactly the same thing, but they are they are linked, and, and they're linked together a lot of times when, when you're having discussions about one or the other. So during the during I, I mentioned it before when the, the new power the new states came out of the decolonization and then they wouldn't allow secession of peoples in their in their areas. And during this third phase, post-colonial phase, European states shifted their view on secession, and, and they adopted the position that self-determination is a right that authorizes minorities to break away. So we see the West changing their position from what it was before in an anti-secession, right? They didn't want that then. But now they're saying, okay, well, now that self-determination has come this far, we can't ratchet it back. So we're going to say, well, okay, well, self-determination means secession. And this was based on the view that self-determination that, that self only meant independence. Right, so this goes to the external versus internal distinction. The West was like, we don't want this new internal self-determination of being able to choose economic, social, and cultural freedoms within a state. We just want it to mean the, to have an independent state at all. And so because if it means to have an independent state at all, then we're willing to allow it to mean secession because there aren't these other duties that a state would have to follow once the new state was made. Right. They wouldn't have these political and, and other kind of rights that they'd have to grant people. They would just want an independent state and then that would cut it. The third world uh, states oppose this view on the ground that it would allow certain powerful nations to work for the disintegration of other nations by instigating artificial separatist movements within peoples united by mutual consent, quote unquote, mutual consent. So that's what the third world's worried about. The third world's like, no, we want self-determination from you, but we're not going to allow you to take this doctrine to foment secessionist movements in our new states in order to, you know, impose your will surreptitiously because we know that they've done that so many times. They've run so many coups. They've run so many stuff. And you know all about this. You're a, you're yeah. a, you're a junkie for this kind of stuff. We, we see it right now, especially in Hong Kong. The CIA, I mean, I my sympathies are with those protesters, but the CIA are instigating these protests and yeah. a lot of their leaders are meeting with people like Mike Pompeo and that. I'm sorry, but come on now. <laughs> so it just it just blows my mind, dude. I was looking I was looking at JFK's Wikipedia page uh, yesterday and and it's like, uh, what was Operation? Uh, what, uh, Northwoods or Mongoose? Well, both. Yeah. And didn't he didn't he go along with Mongoose and then he's like no on Northwoods? Yeah, I think I, I think that's what it was. He went uh, he went along with Mongoose, realized what a disaster it was, and said yeah. no to Northwoods, and that's whenever you know yeah, they decided we know, we're we're gonna take care of this problem. We all know what happens next. <laughs> yeah, we all know what happens next. But at <laughs> so I mean this is something that happens and we know it happens, and you know, the third world states for whatever their problems. I mean, you can't blame them for pointing this out and saying, we know what you're going to try to do, you know, in the West. And, you know, they, they still try to do it. So the secession issue was ultimately resolved in favor of the view that, that 
secession under self-determination. That there is no self-determination. Sorry, there is no secession under self-determination. That's what was resolved in this third period, the post-colonial era. And, that, and this happened because the definition of peoples was restricted to existing state boundaries. So, so that's what I've talked about before, how once you have this state, the peoples is those people in the state. So under the legal doctrine of self-determination, peoples means the peoples of an independent state. It does not mean a nationality. It does not mean a religion. It does not mean an ethnicity. It does not mean a common language. It does not mean a common history. It means whether or not you live and are a citizen of an independent state. That is the peoples, quote unquote, of self-determination of peoples as a legal doctrine. And that's what this period led us to. That was what that position was what was able to save self-determination from the secessionist arguments. Uh, at least for the time being, and hopefully my paper will lead us to rejecting those anti-secessionist arguments. Um, so yeah, ultimately, neither of these views would stand, and we see that the modern incarnation of self-determination is basically just a legal birthing of a compromise between these two West and Third World sides arguing between this on this self-determination issue. It's a middle ground between these two positions. So with that, we can try to summarize what the modern legal principle of self-determination of peoples is. First, it is a human right under international law. So that's what they'll call it. It's a universal human right that all people enjoy at all times. If you, you have a right to live under an independent state and you have a right to have economic, social, and cultural freedom and adequate political participation within that state. That's what self-determination means. That's what they put forth under the, in, under the international law. But it's not an absolute right. So it doesn't mean that you can just break away at will. It doesn't mean that as an individual you can just secede with your own private property as we would want. It's, it's not an unlimited right, but it is a universal right. So it's universally applied to all people at all times, but it, it's not universal in the sense of allowing secession and other kind of things that you might think it would allow. Logically should allow, but doesn't. So, moreover, it's a right of peoples, not of individuals. It's a very collectivist doctrine. And like I said before, the peoples are the peoples of an independent state. So it is not the right of an individual to self-determination. It's the right of a people, of a group, to self-determination. Very collectivist view, which is faulty, and we'll get to that. It's not a right of minorities as such. So if you're in a minority group within a state, you can't say, hey, we're a minority group, and we want self-determination as a minority. Not going to work. Under the legal doctrine, you're not going to win that argument. And people have tried, and you're, and you're just not going to get that. That's not going to hold water under the legal doctrine as it stands, at least. So self-determination is not an authorization of secession. But, importantly, there is nothing in international law that prohibits secession. Now, we have some, the state's territorial integrity, which kind of pushes back on it, but it's not an explicit no secession can ever happen because, I mean, we have... 
state succession happens and boundaries change throughout history. This is just kind of a fact. And international law, to its credit at least, at least it says in some places, look, if we're going to recognize a government as a government or a state as a state or a, a state succeeding another state, even if underneath the international law proper, the way this new state kind of came into being was not legal in the strictest sense of the term, at least international law to its credit will say if it's operating as a state and it's happening and we have nothing to say against it, this is the way it is, then we just got to accept it. Even if it was an illegal revolution, quote unquote, or whatever, if the revolution's successful, the international community just kind of has to look at it and say, well, that happened and we have to accept it. So to his credit, they at least make that they at least make that concession. But there's no explicit prohibition in international law against secession, but there's no explicit authorization of it through the self-determination doctrine. And that's the important point is that self-determination does not justify self-secession under the legal view, which is very problematic under the theoretical view, as we'll get to. Uh, secession justified by a claim of self-determination, if it is to occur, must be subordinated in the first instance to state sovereign territorial integrity. Now, that's the modern doctrine, and I want to get next into some of the problems, and we've been talking a little bit about some of the problems it poses, um, but there's a little bit of a break here, so I want to turn it over to you. Do you have any thoughts on what I've been saying? Anything you want to add in? No, not really. I'm actually excited to get into these problems and uh, discuss it with you. So I kind of want to go into that. All right, great. Well, I'll just I'll just keep keep plugging along then. So I I don't consider my list of problems that I, that I tackle in here to be exhaustive. Um, there's probably other things I didn't think of, you know, uh, whatever. Um, but I think I I do a good job of of at least tackling some of the biggest ones. And, yes. And 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 some of the ones that are that I think would be most important and most interesting to libertarians too, but also most um cataclysmically relevant to the future of the international law system, which we'll get to. Um, so I'll just list off of my problems, and then I'll go through them one by one. The first problem is how do we define peoples? Uh, the second problem is self-determination versus states' sovereign territorial integrity, which we talked about. A sub-problem of that is how do we draw new borders after a successful secession? And another sub-problem is, 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 does self-determination claims promote violent conflict? I mean, does this doctrine lead to civil war? Which is something I think you might have even kind of alluded to before. And it's a legitimate question. And lastly, does self-determination undermine majority rule and equal rights, which are liberal democratic views that underpin much of the international law system? So those are some of the issues. The definition of peoples, it's like I said, it's a very collectivistic view. So it's like, how do we, how do we, how do we decide what peoples means for this legal view? And as I said, there's a distinction between the political and the legal view of self-determination. The political view of self-determination wants to assert self-determination for nation, ethnicity, religion, historical background of a group. That's what they want to push. That's what the political self-determination wants to push. That's what Rothbard wants to push. That's what other people want to push. 
And the legal and the legal doctrine doesn't want any of that. The states that that are setting these legal doctrines, they don't want any of that. And they want it to they want peoples to be restricted to independent states. So there's tension here. The pushing forward of the political self-determination puts pressure on the legal self-determination to conform its definition of peoples to be more about nation, ethnicity, etc. So there's a tension here. The answer is clear of where self of where the legal self-determination is right now, but the problem is that there's a tension. And an important thing about international law is that it's a process. And this is true with all law. All law is a process. You know, one of the important things you learn in law school is not to just look at law as it is right now. You have to learn how law changes, what's the process of making decisions, what's the process of going through law, and how to do research and learn when things have changed. So just because self-determination principle defines peoples as it is right now doesn't mean that that can't change. I mean, we've just gone through this whole history of how self-determination was made in the first place. So, you know, think about law as a process. That's an important thing. So. We know what the definition is right now, but there's pressure on it to change. The next problem is 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 how self-determination plays with states' territorial integrity. Because if self-determination is going to allow secession, then that would be a problem for states where, let's say you have a state where 50% plus one of the people live on the east side, and you know, fifty percent minus one live on the west side, and the minority wants to secede. Well, the state's saying, "No, no, that's our borders. Don't change that. What are you doing?" You know. So that's another problem. If we keep pushing self-determination towards secession, which we want, which I want to do, and which I think is the logical position to take, if this keeps moving on, then this doesn't bode well for state sovereign territorial integrity. Self-determination seems to want to creep up on it and take it down. So this is a problem too that, that states in the international system have to deal with as they move forward with this doctrine. What's How is this going to affect borders in the future? An interesting quote, and I think this really underlies the problem here. This guy named Zubaida Mustafa, and he wrote this great paper in 1971 back when self-determination was really, really new in its current phase, right? He's writing about how if self-determination were to go beyond the right of non-self-governing territories, right? So if it were to go beyond the decolonization context, like we were talking about before, if we were to recognize the right of self-determination as transcending legally established international boundaries, it would undermine the stability of the international order by placing it in perpetual state of flux. It would also destroy the premise on which international law operates, viz. respect for the national unity and territorial integrity of states. But we see that it is now a right. It's a universal right, which in that sense does transcend borders. Now, they're trying to rein it in by defining people as within the borders. They're trying to rein that in. But we still see that it is a universal right. And it is a right which is ongoing at all times, that people have to have an independent state, and they have to have these freedoms within that. So in a sense, it does transcend borders, and that's what Mustafa was talking about back in the 70s. And now we see that. So this problem, I think, is really going to come home. And I think that the, the arguments in favor of self-determination pushing against the borders is just going to become stronger with more, with more time, especially as we see more nationalist sentiments growing. And the thing with the borders to me, 
if you don't mind, can I jump ahead real no, quick please. and talk about the Austrian solution to this problem? No, please, please do. That's why I find the Austrian solution to the problem of borders, simply private borders uh, being the solution. I find that to be the best one because, yeah, um, these borders do. <laughs> I mean, we already know that statism as it is, is illegitimate. So when a state can set its borders, and to me, those borders are illegitimate with this doctrine specifically that you're talking about. That's the reason that's a, such a huge problem goes back to the whole there being a diversity of ideologies in this doctrine. Um, the contradictions show up. And uh, when they go to create these borders, you're going to have a lot of uh, tension and conflict, even within the idea of establishing borders, where they'll be established, how they'll be established, uh, what these borders will mean. Um, so that's a whole quagmire on its own that could simply be resolved if we took the Austrian libertarian point of view. Perfect. That's that's absolutely right. And that's the point that Rothbard makes. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, like you yeah. said, when we get to the solution. Well, well, let's see what's next here. Oh, so the next is is how to draw new borders after secession. Which I kind of touched on would be hard. Yeah, yeah exactly. But it's like, what's the, how do we do that? I mean, even if we secede or we break free from a state, yeah, like where are the line going to be? What are the natures of those lines going to be? Who's going to decide? Are we going to do it by a vote? And also, there's tension between that and and that that doctrine I talked about, Udi Posaditis Juris, this Latin term, which means that when a state succeeds another, the previous political borders remain in place. So that doctrine seems to butt up against what we were talking about, like having private choice and private property, because it's like the previous borders should be maintained even though it, there's a transfer of power. And that kind of, you know, that butts up against people having real free choice over their own political boundaries. And, and to be fair, the, the doctrine does allow for changes of state borders after state succession via treaty. So there is a little bit, you know, in there. Yeah, have some, Yeah, a little mechanism to change it a little bit which you know practically we could try to leverage as libertarians if we got more power in government and and made those treaties you know to, to move us forward towards a more libertarian world uh but it's it, it's ultimately uh you know in terms of the pure ultimate goal it is lacking to have the state be the one who makes that decision rather than the 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 individuals on the spot another problem is uh do self-determination claims promote violent conflict and this is a concern, um, whether or not it will create conflict between states and um, and and groups trying to assert self-determination against the state. So separatists, revolutionaries. I think within this doctrine, it will always will. It will inevitably lead to conflict because of a unnatural imbalance of powers. Um, and also, again, going back to the whole confusion the contradictions and all this and the what politics will come the what kind of politics will come along with that kind of stuff yeah i think it inevitably will lead to violence and yeah. uh, i think we've seen that a lot in uh especially the, you know like you, going back to third world countries um look at uh sudan i mean they had a whole civil war i believe and uh south sudan did secede and all the Christian Sudanese are there now, but um, 
I'm it was a violent civil war and um yeah, the second Sudanese civil war. And it was a continuation basically of the first Sudanese civil war, but this one started in South Sudan. But yeah, I mean that's one where uh the people of South Sudan wanted to have their religious rights and violent uh conflict erupted and I think there you know there's many more examples of that. That's just the one that popped into my mind. But yeah, I think be, with this doctrine, it will always inevitably lead to um, conflict. And a big reason for that is because this doctrine, as opposed to the Austrian libertarian doctrine that me and you or all you are putting forth that I'm just basically echoing and agreeing with, is that their view, that doctrine is very contradicting, no consistency, too many uh points of view that contradict each other and antagonize each other i think are playing into each other whereas with the austrian libertarian view it's perfect consistency everything makes sense things are kind of spelled out in simple terms and um yeah for that reason alone i think yes it will always lead to violent conflict. yeah i i i agree with you and it's a point i make when i get into the solutions because I do want to put forth an argument that if we take self-determination and we properly understand it in the Austro-Libertarian sense, and if we can kind of craft a view of self-determination that's based in the Austro-Libertarian theory, then that would prevent and get rid of violent conflict. But the problem is that you have this, this legal doctrine of self-determination of peoples, and it's necessarily linked to the state. And I think that's you know the, the, the point you're getting at is that is that as long as you are trying to find self-determination through the state, then you're going to cause conflict because when the majority gets self-determination with the state, it's necessarily at the expense of the minority. So one group's getting self-determination through the state means that the, another person necessarily is not getting that through that same state. So that's another contradiction there that we see. And so I, I do accept that. You're right. This legal doctrine as it stands can lead to violent conflict, which is why we need to replace it with the Austro-Libertarian view of this doctrine, which would prevent it, as, as Rothbard eloquently argues in Nations by Consent. Another guy, a good paper. I can't believe I haven't talked about it yet, but I, I need to mention it because everybody should read it. By a guy named Robert McGee. Uh, McGee, sorry. And, and it's called... The Theory of Secession and Emerging Democracies, a Constitutional Solution, was released in the Stanford Journal of International Law in 1991. Robert W. McGee. Everyone should look that paper up. I draw heavily from that paper in my paper. And he, and he makes, he tackles practical problems with secession and by extension, he doesn't mention self-determination directly, but because you know, he's talking about secession, it, by extension, I, I, I bring it in. And and he makes a point that violent conflict and stuff, if if we get self-determination right, if we get secession right, it, it, it will actually reduce conflict. So we'll get to that. But you're, I completely agree with you. As it stands right now, it, it will lead to violent conflict. I absolutely agree. The last problem before we get to the solutions, to the real fun part, is self-determination versus majority rule and equal rights. Uh, I found a article by a, I think he was a political uh, science professor. I, I don't think he was a legal, a legal theorist per se, um, but his name was Alexa Alexander P 
Papkovich, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and, and, and he wrote a paper about secession, majority rule, and equal rights. Um, that's the name of the paper, Secession, Majority Rule, and Equal Rights, which is in the, I don't know, Ma Macquarie Law Journal, M-A-C-Q-U-A-R-I-E. That's how you spell that. But anyway, so he he seems to doubt that that um, that self determination. Well, that secession. And again, I'm talking about secession, but I'm bringing it into self determination by extension. Um, he seems to argue that when you have a liberal democratic state, which he assumes, you know, is a rights respecter, which he's wrong on, and which I get into later in the paper. He seems to assume that secession needs to be limited in order to protect the rights of of people living in the liberal democratic state at the time. And, uh, you know, we definitely would not agree that the people living under the liberal democratic state are are um, having their rights respected. So secession, I think, is the only answer for them to get any recapturing of, of a respect for their rights. But also, he, he makes the conflation of liberalism and democracy, which we know from Hoppe is not correct. And I draw heavily from democracy that God that failed at, in the in the final leg of my paper when I'm when I'm taking down Pavkovich's arguments. And, and, you know, that's just that problem there where you think that democracy is this liberal, you know, wonderful thing. And then you realize, no, it's just majority subjugation of the minority. And that's the problem with self-determination too, right? Which we were talking about before. If you have self-determination through the state for yourself, then it's necessarily at the expense of somebody else. So, yeah, that's, that's a problem for the liberal democratic international order. If self-determination and secession is, ta when taken logically to its conclusion, it's against the very liberal democratic idea that you are talking about so much, you know? So in terms of, in terms of the propaganda that states are rights protectors through democracy and stuff, this self-determination poses a serious, a serious wrecking ball to their propaganda that they are rights protectors and that they actually allow people to have true self-determination because they're saying, oh, you get this external self-determination with an independent state and then you follow all this stuff, but then it's, you know, you have all these political economic rights or whatever in these United States charters that they say, but then you live in the liberal democratic state, which by necessity cannot respect those rights. So you got a problem here, to say the least. Um, but now we get to the solution. So again, you know, just a little natural break in what I'm talking about. You know, any any final thoughts on any of those problems you want to bring in? And if not, I'll just keep uh, moving ahead. I, all that I got to say is that I think all those problems are induced uh, by this doctrine and there's really no solutions to them because of this doctrine uh, everything i've said before just kind of applies to that but um no i'm excited to talk about these solutions so let's get on to that i i take each problem that i laid out and in the same order that i laid them out in the problem section i lay them out in the solutions section so for the definition of peoples um we've talked about this a little bit before but i basically just say Austro-libertarianism rejects the idea of collective rights. All rights are property rights. Individual self-ownership, individual private property. That is the basis of rights in the Austro-libertarian view. So that simple insight alone 
shows that the the collectivist idea of peoples underneath this legal doctrine is theoretically faulty. And so the very unit at which you are trying to apply this right, the very unit is not a unit which can, under proper legal theory, be a unit which you can which you can have legal cognizance of, right? So that's a problem right there. You're trying to inject this collectivist view, which is entirely theoretically unsound. So if we adopt that approach, we realize that just this view can't stand on, on its own merit. This is a point that Rothbard talks about in Ethics of Liberty and in, uh, and in his uh, great paper, Law, Property Rights, and Air Pollution, which I both quote in this argument. So for self-determination to be theoretically viable, it must at its base rest in the individual. But this is not the end of our inquiry. For humans are social creatures. We do come together into groups. So is it possible for the Austro-Libertarian theory with its focus on individual self-ownership and private property, is it possible for it to extend to some conception of self-determination of groups? And I say yes. And I mentioned this before, through contractual relations between individuals. We have individuals who own themselves and own their property, and they can come together in two relations with their pot, with themselves and their property through contract, you know, either explicitly or implicitly, as long as you, there's an provable objective link between a person and their property and the contracts that they're making. We can have a self-determination of people in the sense of, hey, we want to come together and have a, you know, a voluntary market government, right? We want to have uh, courts, we want to have lawyers, dispute resolution, whatever. Those people come together. Well, that's them. That's that group asserting their self-determination because they are choosing to become a part of it. And they're choosing to be a part of that group. So well, the only thing I'll add on to that really quick yes, is please. that even without the idea of contracts, the Austro-Libertarian philosophy supports the idea of freedom of association. Right. And we are, we believe all in the non-aggression principle. So as long as those two things are followed, say me and you use our freedom of association to come together to tackle our similar self-interest and we don't aggress upon anyone or property in that realm, we're totally fine. Absolutely. You're completely right. Yeah, we, we can have this kind of, and it's based in the individual, as always, but it's the same kind of idea with corporations and stuff, right? If you come together and you, and you make a contract and you can prove that those individuals voluntarily came together, then that is a group which I think in a private property legal regime, would have legal cognizance, could be recognized as a legal entity, and therefore we could attach to it this idea of self-determination. But it's vicarious through individuals, but you know, it's, it's, it's a way to bridge this gap between the individual and the group in terms of self-determination. And this is, I think, absolutely the right, the right view to take. It solves the contradictions of, of a collectivist view like we've been talking about. And so... So yeah, so that answers that answers that first problem. I go to a little bit more detail in the paper, which um, people can look that up. Oh, I'll say before moving on that when I release this episode, I do not expect my paper to be out quite yet, but I'm going to submit it to a couple conferences, and I know that one of the conferences, the Austrian Student Scholars Conference, does release the papers 
uh, the PDFs on the website. So when that gets posted, I will update the uh, description for this episode, and then you can find it there. So people who are listening to this early might not be able to find it right away, but once it's available, I'll put it up, and so you can find it then. Um, so next, next problem is self-determination versus uh, state sovereignty and territorial integrity. So Austro-Libertarians, as we've talked about many, many times, they reject the institution of the state entirely. They view it as a divorce of law from justice because it's inconsistent with self-ownership and private property. So the Austro-Libertarian has absolutely no theoretical hurdles to assert self-determination over and above state territorial integrity. No problem. Which makes our solutions and our uh, initiative in this that much easier. Exactly. Like, we're just stripping, like, you see, once you apply the Austrian libertarian view, collectivist view of people, it's, it's you, you solve it. State territorial integrity, you, you solve it. It's just like you take this very simple thing and this huge problem of all those problems we were talking about before. And it's just like, you just got this simple, just a simple, logical Consistent starting point can really solve. It's just why I think libertarianism is just so beautiful. It's just literally the best philosophy ever. Yeah, man, and your paper illustrates that greatly. Thank you so much. So let's see. So, um, yeah, we have no problem dispensing with state sovereign territorial integrity, and so that just kind of wipes a lot of those problems off the table. And having dispensed with that, in theory, nothing stopping the Austro-Libertarian from supporting unconditional secession from nation-states, even secession of the individual, which is a point that Mises and other people have made. Um, and, I, and I agree with. There's, there's nothing theoretically stopping that once we ad adopt the Austro-Libertarian position. It liberates self-determination from strained attempts to theoretically square it with state sovereign territorial integrity, which, which, which is just a simple ab absolute exercise in futility. The next problem is how do we draw new borders after secession? Because we have to consider that we do live in a world with states, and if we're going to be seceding from states, then you know it's not going to be perfect. It might be messy. There might be certain practical hurdles, or you know, just unsure of how to move forward best to attain liberty in the long run. So, how do we draw borders after secession? If we accept the radical theory of secession, then this is something you mentioned before. We want political borders and state borders to as much as possible be in line with the private property and voluntary contract of individual people. And so that needs to be the theoretical basis for how new national borders should be drawn after secession. There's different ways that you could maybe do that. Rothbard talks about referendum votes. Uh, uh, Mickey offers some practical um, suggestions and solutions. He talks a lot about a uh, couple of South African legal theorists who came up with an interesting theory of secession during the time Mickey was writing. Um, but So practically speaking, there's some different things here. And I don't go too much into the practicality with stuff with my paper. I, I note it and mention that it's a problem. It's something that needs to be dealt with. But my paper is much more you know, theoretical in its scope. But the theoretical answer is that new borders after secession need to be in line with private property and voluntary contract. That's the, that's the main takeaway from there. And, and like you said, once we have that, it, it, it just leads to less conflict and it's, it's the best justification for how to erect society. So I think that that solves, that solves the problem very well.
Next problem, do self-determination claims promote violent conflict? And this is something we said before. And I think the I think as it stands right now, the legal doctrine, I think yes. I think I mean I haven't looked at the empirical data, but I think there's a there's a strong argument to make that this could lead to violent conflicts between states and revolutionaries and separatists or between conflicting separatists, different people who want control over the same state or the same territory. And within the Austrian libertarian point of view on uh, the problem that violent uh, conflicts will arise out of this. um, Yeah, I think obviously they still could. The only thing is that in our, in our uh, initiative, the, what we would do is if someone, if that did arise and it was aggression unjustified, it would be punished. Whereas in this doctrine, not a, no, there's no due justice. No one really gets punished uh, except the people that were, I mean, not to excuse them, but simply taking orders. Uh, we never see the head honchos go down. We never see the top brass get the punishment they deserve. So that's uh, something that would be easily tackled and taken care of at the Austrian libertarian point of view, because uh, in our point of view, people would be responsible for yeah. their own actions. And, and also under our point of view, under the law, all people are equal. That, yes. That's somewhere where all people are equal and is under the scope of the law in our view. Absolutely right. That's a great point. I really like that. Um, so. Yeah, I, I do see the problem, and I, I do see that this can lead to that. And um, so I say self-determination under international law is linked to people's relations to the institution of the state. Therefore, it's no surprise that it could lead to violent conflicts. And I go back again, when one state achieves self-determination through a state is necessarily at the expense of another, of the minorities within the, within the state. So if we apply Austro-Libertarianism and decouple self-determination from the state and pair it with private property and contract and that theory of government and then social conflicts between claims for desired treatment from the state disappear there would be no legal right to use the state to get goodies from somebody else so if one person or one group got self-determination for themselves through private property then but then by definition they are not doing it through violence of other people and you can have at this live and let live in different coexistence or peaceful trade and, and, and you know, peaceful political, um, peaceful property borders and, 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 and government. So, yeah, it's it's under the theory of private property legal regime. The, 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 the problem of majority tyranny just vanishes. It's, it just disappears. So secession and I make some arguments for why secession, even in the modern day, would have some practical benefits. It would provide the majority an incentive to consider the minority's rights and wishes and to improve conditions. Because if they didn't, then they would, people would vote with their feet as much as they could, and then they would lose support and the state would whittle away because people would continually move away and it wouldn't have tax revenue or, uh, or, or human capital livestock with which to leverage you know, getting debt in their name or, or, or printing money, monetizing debt through the central bank. So... I think that even in the modern day, secession would tend to lead to better outcomes um, in general. So, I, I, so it's not entirely clear how these different factors will play out in the end. So there's a risk of the violence, but then there's also the risk of, you know, the, the, there's also the possibility that it would lead to more peace um, and a peaceful divorce, which we absolutely support.
Moreover, proliferation of many smaller nations and states would lead to a greater amount of free trade among them because they can't rely on autarky, autarky as much if they're a small state, right? You can argue by American more than you can argue by North Dakotan because North Dakota doesn't really produce everything you could ever want, right? It's so small. So if you have smaller states, the autarky arguments break down. And so the different groups of people who might have different religions, different histories and stuff, they will come together, not politically, but through trade. And I think that there is very strong theoretical and empirical data to show that trade promotes peace among different nations and states. So having more secession would lead to more states, more smaller states, and that would lead to peace and uh, peace through trade. So I think that that is a good um, uh, empirical bit of evidence to suggest that 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 um, that secession through self determination would actually reduce violence rather than create it. Yeah, and the and a great way to tackle that in simple language from a layman's point of view is that when you minimize something and you decentralize it, the problems that will arise from whatever that thing is will be minimized as well in terms of who they hurt, um, what other problems they'll bring on, and who has to pay for it. And that's yeah. a good thing for everyone. It may not be good for the person who runs into those problems, but at least the rest of everyone else is suffering because of this person. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think that's the perfect way to tackle this issue. Last problem that we'll get to, and then I'll make my closing remarks, is the self-determination versus majority rule and equal rights. And we already kind of talked about that before, is that democracy, liberal democracy, well, democracy is not liberal. So... By necessity with democracy, we do not have equal rights. Um, and, and I draw heavily from Hoppe, where he talks about how under democracy there are privileged positions. So there's not a, a an express privileged nobility class like there is with a king, but there are still privileged governmental functions where people can steal your money through taxes, take out debt in your name, or or monetize debt through through printing it and, you know, the cartel banking system give the money to their friends before the inflation hits. So they still have privileged functions that they can use to enrich themselves and their politically connected friend. And that's how we get the deep state, this cabal of people who's, who transcend presidential um, administrations and stuff, but we don't see them. And people don't believe it's real because we have this propaganda of democracy that we govern ourselves and we vote for these people and all this crap. And Hoppe just cuts it right down. He says, no, you're wrong. And especially liberal libertarians who support democracy, you are wrong. And so that's what I try to say here, arguing against this idea that secession and by extension self-determination might undermine that. Well, we want that to be undermined. So I make that point. Also, um, with equal rights, and I, I really like the point you said, you know, with, with equality under the law and stuff. I think what when, when we're talking about equal rights and when I talk about equal rights in the paper in regards to Pavkovich and, and, and using Hoppe to criticize Pavkovich, I'm talking more about equal rights in the sense of like, you know, the, the kind of fluffy, you know, neoliberal rights that people argue for today that are not individual private property rights, freedom of association, the actual provable, you know, Rothbardian type of rights that we um, support. Um, so I think as far as, you know, we're conceptualizing equal rights in our sense of what you talked about, totally agree with that. You know, people have equal right 
to their property. But they don't have equal rights in the sense of being able to use somebody else's property as they want, right? So that's what I'm criticizing there. And I'm, so that's why I'm really glad that you made that point. I, I hope it can maybe clears up some confusion about um, what I mean there. So yeah, only by decoupling self-determination from the state can it be attained by one group without necessarily taking it from an, away from another. And I think Hoppe's, uh, Hoppe's arguments against democracy uh, show that clearly um, after, after everything I've, I've set up before. So we come to the conclusion. And again, anything you'd like to say about any of those solutions before I make my final my final takeaway, and I think it's a really good takeaway. As I've said before, I just think those solutions are perfect. Fantastic. So here's the takeaway. You know, well, first the history, and I'll reiterate that, is that we see self-determination as a statist ploy. We see self-determination as these states trying to use it as a political tool and a propagandistic tool to aggrandize their own power. The West wanting to do it, the third world states trying to do it. So that's the history of the doctrine. It's politically fraught. It, was, it wasn't about rights of people. It wasn't about doing the right thing. It was about how can we get more power, you know? That's what the, that's what the West wanted to do after World War I. That's what the Third World wanted to do when they were decolonizing, and that's what the West wanted to do. They wanted to mold self-determination because they knew they, that because of the increased participation by the Third World states in the United Nations, they knew they couldn't get rid of it entirely because they were kind of the ones who made it in the first place, so that would look bad. But they tried to mold it in a way that would allow them to keep more power than they otherwise would. So we see this transcending the history of this doctrine, this this political side of it and its propagandistic side. We talk about its problems, how when it's tied to the state, it's, it's theoretically untenable. We have all of these contradictions, and we see just by getting rid of the state, we fix so many of the problems that this, that this doctrine has, this legal doctrine. So ultimately, we must conclude that the current international law incarnation of the self-determination doctrine, it cannot be theoretically sustained. And so the international system is faced with a catch-22 dilemma with this doctrine, under the legal doctrine. Either they must take self-determination down its logical path to its logical conclusion, which means unfettered secession, the destruction of states' sovereign territorial integrity, which would mean almost a, one of the biggest first steps to the downfall of all of statism, was what the logical conclusion of some of this means, especially, you know, when we look at it through the proper Austro-Libertarian lens and the proper theoretical lens on, on what law is and how to analyze that. They must either do that or they must reject it explicitly and entirely. And neither option is good for them. Neither option is desirable for states and their desire to retain power. The former, because their sovereignty would be toppled, and the latter, because they would lose the propagandistic cover that the state cons consistently act as a rights protector. They either have to say self-determination is going all the way to where we destroy ourselves, we destroy our sovereign territorial borders, or 
They reject it explicitly and entirely, and they say to their people, we don't care about your self-determination. We care about our power. Neither option is good for them because either option incentivizes them to be completely delegitimized, to have their power delegitimized. In the first instance, because their borders don't mean anything anymore. The second instance, because they're saying to people, we don't care about your right to self-determination, which we've already established and now we're taking away. People will be like, what? What are you doing? So I think that you can't, you can't take this middle road forever. They've been trying to take the middle road, and I don't think it's sustainable because I think that in either of those two options, we get more nationalism, we get more secessionist movements, we get more anger at the state, and in the middle ground, the same thing happens because of all these contradictions and, like you said, the violent conflicts and stuff, I think trying to take the middle ground is what will cause the violent conflicts when we're trying to fight for self-determination through the state. We're going to keep having that where the states are fighting separatists, where separatists are fighting separatists, and it's it's a mess. And, and there's a lot of history of you know these civil wars and, and breakouts and stuff that I think are attributable to these kind of ideas. So I think that attempting to split the difference between the two only delays the choice between one of these choices, either destroying your sovereign territory or destroying any kind of faith in that you actually care about the rights of your citizens and that you want them to be free and that they actually represent the people's will. Because if the people don't have self-determination, how can you say that the state represents their will? So, through the doctrine of self-determination, the statist international system has likely made its own bed. And we'll see which side they lie in. In terms of the practical takeaway of what libertarians need to do from this lesson is to learn this argument and to make this argument in any time. You're talking about international law. You're talking about relations between states. Anytime you're talking about self-determination, either politically or legally, you need to make this argument and you need to push this. And you need to. we need to make international leaders and state leaders face this argument. We need to put it at their feet and say, hey, which side are you on? We need to force their hand. And that's part of that is making this argument to people, spreading the word, and making this argument to the political leaders and forcing them to look at it. Because if they have it put in front of them and they don't make an answer, that's gonna raise suspicion for people and they're gonna realize that this is something they do not wanna touch. We need to force them to touch it because it's a third rail. And if they touch it, they might just blast themselves to smithereens, either by saying, all right, no sovereign territorial integrity, or by saying no self-determination. So we need to force them to make a decision because then they'll reveal themselves for what they really are. Let's force their hand. Yeah, and last thing I'll say before we close just do what we libertarians do best and disrupt the status quo. This is one way we can do that even better. Absolutely. I want to thank everybody for listening. We hope you come back to listen next time.